Why is it that God tries your faith as a Christian? Why is that? Are there times, beloved, that he puts you off? That he uh, says in so many words to you, not now, not yet, maybe not at all? Why does he do that? Well, I want to reassure you, he loves you dearly. He wants you to grow in grace. He wants you to grow in the knowledge of him. And we read this in James chapter 1 and verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Count it all joy. Are you going through a trial right now? And are you counting it all joy? God is trying to do something in your life, and Peter calls those trials precious. They weren't designed to crush us. They were designed to establish us. The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Well, let's take our Bibles, please, at this time and turn to the Gospel of John once again in the fourth chapter. We are in a series here in the Gospel of John, and we're seeing the... Uh, the narrative switched back and forth here. Actually, there's a real contrast this time from last time. You know, we saw the Samaritans last time. Remember that? And we talked about what it means to believe. The Samaritans saw no miracles, and yet they still believed. But today, we're going to be looking at a nobleman. And boy, for him, seeing is believing. He just had to see in order to believe. And he wanted to see some miracles, and Christ refused to do it for him. We're going to be talking today about when God tries our faith, and I want you to notice how the Lord here deals with this nobleman in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, reading down to verse number 48. The Bible says, Now after two days he, that is Christ, departed thence and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went up into the feast. So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea unto Galilee, he went unto him and besought or begged him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, of all the things to hear when you're desperate and your son is dying, to be chided or rebuked with that statement, except you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. We find here Christ almost stiff-arming the nobleman, holding him at arm's length at least for the time, and doing something unusual with him that we're going to be talking about today as we talk about when God tries your faith, when God tries your faith. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the opportunity to once again assemble like this on this special day, this special weekend. We pray that as your word is open, you would please speak to our hearts and show us some things. And Father, truly there's not a person here or listening in the area or the world who has not had trying times. And for God's people, even their faith has been tried. How do we react at such times? Help us to listen carefully. We'll thank you for it. We pray now all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
number of years ago, there was a Christian man on an ocean-lining vessel, and uh, in a tragic accident, according to the story, uh, it went down, and uh, this Christian man was the only survivor with a few things floating in the ocean, and he made his way to an uninhabited island. He floated in, and by himself, he gathered up a few things that had floated in, and he went to work building a hut. It took him a long time to build. A lot of work, no power tools, no tools of any kind, but he did the best to put this hut up. He put his heart into it, and he began to pray that God would send somebody by to rescue him. One day he was out trying to gather some food, and he came back, and his hut is on fire. He just dropped to his knees, and he thought, the only thing in the world I have has been burned up, and he cried out to God, why? But what seemed to be a, a setback and a struggle actually ended up to be a blessing because the next day this boat pulls into the harbor there off a ship that had been going by and said, we saw your smoke signal and we uh, came by to rescue you here. And you know, life is kind of like that at times, isn't it? What we think are awful setbacks are actually stepping stones and especially in the Christian economy here. So we're going to be talking about the school of faith and really... The life of faith starts with faith, and if you understand John's gospel, we know there's a motto to it, there's a theme to it, and John will say over and over again that you might believe, that you might believe. And so today we're going to contrast what we call belief with doubt. And we saw last time the belief, this time we're going to see the doubt. Now last time it was the Samaritans, and notice back in verse number 39, it says, many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him, Christ, for the sayings of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. Notice those words, believed on him. And later on, they're going to say, now we believe on him, not because of what you've said, because we've heard him ourselves. And so they believed on Christ. And last time we talked about what it means to believe. You can believe in Christ and still die lost and go to hell. Did you know that? There are a lot of people who believe in God, but the demons even believe in God, according to James. And they tremble, but of course they're not going to heaven. And you can believe in Christ, in other words, have the intellectual knowledge, and still be lost. And that was me. For nearly 21 years of, of my life, I was sitting on top of a lot of truth. I knew that Christ was virgin born. I knew he lived a sinless life. I, I, I knew he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended up on high. I knew all of that. I had an intellectual belief. There I was believing in Jesus, but not on Jesus. The Bible tells us the Samaritans believed on him. And you say, well, what's the difference? One is what you do in your head, the other is what you do in your heart. And it's been so well said that the difference between heaven and hell is really about 15 or, or 16 inches. A lot of people have them here, but they don't have them there. Now, you can believe an airplane will fly, and we see them go over all the time. Yeah, there's an airplane, I believe they fly. But you really haven't exercised faith until you get on an airplane, right? And then you believed on that airplane, if you will. And so the difference really is the head and the heart. And there are a lot of people and they're trusting in various things to take them to heaven. And they have faith, but their faith is in the wrong thing. If you're trying to work your way to heaven and you say, I'm trying to live a good life, pastor, then your faith is in yourself. See, it's not in Christ. If you are trusting in a certain denomination to take you to heaven, 
And that would have been Paul. That would have been the Judaizers. They, they think, hey, we're children of Moses. We're children of Abraham. We, we have our ticket punched. And, and John the Baptist said, God can make children of, of God out of these stones. And so if your faith is in a denomination, and many people have their faith in a religious institution, that's the wrong thing. Maybe your faith is in your baptism. You say, I've been baptized, Pastor. Well, the water in the baptistry here comes out of the Red River just to the east of here. It comes from the rain before that, and there's no saving power in H2O. And yet there are a lot of people, they have their faith in their baptism, and they will die lost without their faith in Christ. So the Samaritans put all their trust on Jesus and the fact that he was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the atonement for their sin, and they put their faith in the blood that he would shed on Calvary's cross for them. Now, let's look at the contrast. We have this week the flipping of the coin over, if you will, and we're we're introduced to a nobleman, but he's a doubting nobleman. And Jesus calls him out on this, and it's very interesting. Let's look at the story. I see, first of all, here what I call the dishonorable reproach. The dishonorable reproach. Notice, first of all, in verse 43, it opens by telling us, Now after two days he, Christ, departed thence and went into Galilee. Remember this? We talked about it last week. He stayed for two days there in Samaria, dealing with those people, eating their Samaritan food, uh, talking and teaching in their Samaritan households, sleeping in a Samaritan bed. He crossed all racial boundaries there as he ministered to the Samaritans here, and many of them got saved. So he stayed there two days, and the people begged him to stay two days. But you contrast that to when he went across the Sea of Galilee, over into the, the region uh, where we find the demoniac of Gadara. And there the people say, would you leave? Would you get out of here? And you see the difference in the human heart, don't you? And I don't know why some people react favorably and some don't, but don't get discouraged as you witness to folks. Every human heart is different. Now, here's what's going on in the narrative, all right? If you look behind me here, you see the region of Judea to the south there, that's the blue arrow. And then you find the middle region there, and these are like counties, if you will, in the state of Israel, the country of Israel. But that yellow arrow is pointing to Samaria, and that's where Christ has been, at Sychar, the well, and dealing with the woman there. And then you go up north, and this is where he's on his way now. You find the region of Galilee represented by that red arrow. Now, notice in verse number 44 here, it says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. So he's been in Samaria for a couple of days. He's heading north, but that's his country, Galilee. And he says, a prophet hath no honor in his own country. What's that all about? Well, this whole thing had started in Galilee. Remember the wedding feast at Cana? And then Christ had gone down south to Jerusalem, which is in Judea. There he cleansed the temple. There he talks to Nicodemus. And now he heads back north to his own country. He was from Galilee. Nazareth is up in Galilee. He would be called a Galilean. And that would be his own country. You know, there are folks here from various parts of the world. And you, you bring with you tendencies and tenets and traits from your country. 
and every country, every area is different. Uh, we had a little fun on, on Tuesday night with our incoming students at Master Baptist College as we taught them how to speak Fargo, okay? And there's a lot of things that we do here and we say here that are different. Um, we don't say about, we say about. And uh, the further north you get here, it gets even worse. My daughter moved up north and we give her a hard time with that. But Jesus is going back to his own country and his own country is Galilee. Now you say, well, pastor, aren't they all Jews? Yeah, they're all Jews, but they talk a little bit different. Even in our country, we have different accents. In fact, I have a preacher friend from Wisconsin, and he doesn't say family, he says family. And we just say things a little bit differently, don't we? In fact, even in Galilee, they talked a, they talked a little bit differently, and, and you could detect it. In fact, when old Peter denied the Lord, he tried to, to say, I, I never met the guy. In Mark 14, 70, it says, and after, a little after they stood by and said again to Peter, surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, and thy speech agreeeth thereunto. So Peter talked like a Galilean, and there was no hiding it. So Christ is going back to his own country, according to verse number 44, and he tells us something interesting here. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor, in his own country. You know, there's a principle here, and we all need to listen to this. It's so easy to take something for granted that is familiar to you, right? Uh, someone you've been around a while, you know, we have husbands and wives here, and you've been married for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and by this point, your spouse is probably a little bit ho-hum to you, not kind of like you were dating, and uh, you say, well, you know, they're not Mr. Excitement or Mrs. Excitement. Well, let me just say this. Your spouse is not perfect, but listen carefully. You could have done a whole lot worse, all right? I'll say that again. You could have done a whole lot worse. Be thankful for the one you have and give some honor to the one you have. You remember how you did behave yourself when you were courting and dating and all gushy-eyed and Twitter-pated and all that kind of thing. And, and in, in time, what happens to that? Well, you just get used to that person, and you get casual with that person. You get flippant with that person, and it's kind of like ho-hum. So here's Galilee. Of all the places in the world, it had the honor of touting the Son of God came from here. It should have been on billboards everywhere around there. But he's saying, we're going back to Galilee, fellas, and uh, a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And that would play out to be true in time. In fact, Jesus will find him later on. He's upbraiding cities like Capernaum and, and Chorazin and Bethsaida and, and other places and saying, woe unto you. If, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have had me, they would have reacted differently. And he talks about Nineveh, how it reacted to the preaching of Jonah. And he said, the Son of God is here. And they thought, no big deal. And there's a lesson for us all here. Don't take things for granted. You know, God has given to us a wonderful New Testament church here in the 21st century at this time in history here in Fargo, North Dakota. And I'm telling you, churches like this are one in a thousand. And the devil would love to give you a nonchalant attitude about your church, kind of a, a, a ho-hum attitude. And let me just say, when you start taking a New Testament church for granted, that's when trouble begins. Don't ever do that. You ought to get up in the, in the morning and thank God every day for your church 
and honor what God honors. The Bible tells us Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And yet we find in verse 44, Christ testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. They have the creator of the universe in their backyard. Just stop and put it in perspective here. He should have been the pride of Galilee. He should have been the favorite son and a hometown hero. And small town boy makes good. But instead, he heads back up north. And he said, uh, fellas, don't assume it's going to be like Samaria. It's not. Uh, we've had success in Samaria. But, but ultimately, it would not end up that way in Galilee. We see the dishonorable reproach. But secondly, we see the desperate request. Now notice in verse number 45, it says, Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went up unto the feast. So you say, well, pastor, you said a moment ago the Galileans were going to reject him, but here they receive him. Ah, yes, but that's the honeymoon period, all right? Have you ever heard that expression, the honeymoon is over, and you know what that means? You know, I was talking to a fellow here years ago, and he was all excited about getting married. And I was trying to lay the groundwork. Wasn't a Christian fellow, but was trying to give him some biblical help about marriage nonetheless. And I, I remember him stopping me, cutting me off, and saying, oh, no, 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 you, you don't understand. Me and, me and Tammy are different, and, and we, don't, we don't ever have plans of having problems and separating and anything like that. Well, that didn't come to pass. So here we find this honeymoon period with Christ and the folks at Galilee, but it wouldn't always work that way. And I mentioned marriage a moment ago. Let me just say this. Um, you, you, you want to try and keep the honey and the honeymoon as much as possible. And this is the reason marriage needs to be worked at. And both people need to be ditching their selfishness and their bad attitude, and picking their battles carefully, all right? If you're married, remember that expression. And work around each other, and dwell with each other according to knowledge. We would put it this way, don't go there sometimes. Just don't go there. We find this honeymoon period with the Galileans would take place for a while, but it would wane, and it would wear off, and that's human nature. That's human nature. I remember going to school for uh, um, probably about 10 years in the same school up in the Forks north of here. And we moved in my junior year out to the lakes area. And I was the new kid on the block out there. And uh, with it, uh, the big man on campus. Boy, everybody, oh, we got a new kid in school. And it was a little town. And, uh, and I thought, hey, this is neat. But guess what? It wears off. And it did wear off. And so we find out here Christ returns to his hometown. And at first they receive him. But the honeymoon's going to wear off. And they're going to find themselves as fickle. And it would not take too long before they turn on him. In fact, he goes and he preaches in his boyhood hometown of Nazareth in, in the, the synagogue he grew up in. And when he got done in Luke 4, it says, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him under the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. I just saw that brow here earlier this year as we were in the Holy Land. We drove by it and uh, you can pretty much see it was a long drop and uh, they, weren't, they weren't giving him a love tap off that hill. They planned on killing him and the honeymoon 
was certainly over. Well, we find in verse number 45 that he comes into Galilee. The Galileans receive him. They heard about what he had done down south in Jerusalem, those miracles. And in verse number 46, it says, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So here he is back in the same town that really is ministry started out in. He performed his first miracle there in Cana. And Cana is an interesting city today. They're doing a lot of excavating. Of course, the Jews got the country back in 1948. It took them a little while to get their feet under them. And uh, over that time, these decades now, they've been excavating a lot of stuff. And it took them a while to get to Cana. But Cana is a very interesting city today. And you can walk where the Son of God walked at one time, and that's where Jesus Christ is. Now, look behind me, and you'll notice a couple of arrows here. Cana is the blue arrow up in Galilee. Now, this nobleman we're introduced to here, he's come from Capernaum. That's the red arrow. It's on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and and that's evangelism central for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really going to be his headquarters. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Nazareth but it would be Capernaum. But for now, the Lord is about 18 miles away, and he's in Cana. That's about a six-hour walk, or maybe a two-hour chariot ride. But we find here we're introduced to a nobleman, a certain nobleman, in verse number 46. Now, that Greek word for nobleman is interesting. It means the king's man, the king's man. And so here's a big shot, all right? He's the king's man. He's from the Roman court. He uh, wears royal clothes. He oversaw a a territory and people. And he's a man of influence. He's a man of wealth. He's a man of uh, privilege. And he's probably uh, a servant, if you will, of Herod Antipas. He's the king's man. In verse number 47, it says, When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee... He went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The Bible tells us here he makes this 18-mile journey from Capernaum to Cana. And by the way, they didn't have cars and air conditioning and all that stuff then. And so he says to Christ, I'm from Capernaum. Would you come back and heal my son? Well, that's a lot to ask. That's 18 miles away. But he's begging. He's desperate. He's cast off his dignity here, and he needs a favor. The word besought there means begged. He is begging, he is pleading with Christ to come that 18 miles and heal his son. And wouldn't you? I mean, this is his son. There's nothing like the suffering of a loved one to really get you in the heart. You ever notice that as you go through life? If a loved one is suffering, a family especially is suffering, you know, we celebrated a, a birthday this last week. My, my grandson celebrated a birthday. And I, I remembered back to when he was born several years ago. He weighed 2 pounds and 12 ounces at birth. He was in NICU for weeks. And it was nip and tuck. And by the way, the little guy still kind of looks like that. But he's a bundle of, of, of fun and love and energy and a little menace today. And I love him dearly with all my heart. But I'll tell you what, as those weeks wore on, Um, we were desperate, and we were praying, and and we were hoping that he would make it. There's no one who likes to see a loved one suffer. None of us do. And I'm telling you, there have been times as a dad 
and as a granddad now that I have watched my loved ones suffer. And we find here in verse 47, the son of this nobleman is at the point of death. He's dying. And so it's no wonder he besought Christ. You have the son of God in your area. And what hope you might have that he would come and heal your son. Let me just say this. Was Christ able to heal this boy? Of course he was. Jesus Christ is the same one who would later on say this. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I want you to just stop and think about that statement for a moment. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I was reading about the son S-U-N this last week. And I found out that every second, there's 91 billion megatrons of nuclear power. It's like 91 billion atomic nuclear explosions going off every second on the sun. That's a lot of power. And then I thought to myself, okay, our sun is just a star. Stars out there are just basically suns like ours. What's the biggest star in the universe? Well, there's big ones, probably bigger than we know yet. But the biggest one that we know of is a UY something star. And you can fit five billion of our suns into this star. Stop and let that sink in for a moment. That's a lot of power. And Christ comes along and he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That's a lot of power. So could he heal this dying boy? Most certainly. We've talked about the dishonorable reproach. We've seen the desperate request. But oddly enough, let's take a look thirdly at the doubtful's rejection. In verse number 48, Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now that's a rebuke, folks. And it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) This is a desperate dad. He's come for a favor here. This isn't the time for rebukes. Well, Christ is going to help out, and we'll see that next time. But he says in verse number 48 to the man, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. You know, that word ye, in the Greek it's referring to a certain group of people. Don't miss that. The ye is a certain group of people. So what he's saying is, you people, you type of people... You have to see signs and wonders. Jesus knew this man was part of a skeptical crowd, a a cynical crowd, a a doubting crowd. And by the way, there's a lot of folks like that today, aren't there? They they say seeing is believing. And and they have this proud attitude. Well, you're not going to get me with that faith stuff. I'm too smart for that. I got to see it to believe it. You're not going to fool me with that religion, that Bible. And so we find the nobleman here, he's, he's part of that crowd you got to get it in context here. And now he needs a miracle. So he shows up and uh, he he throws all that to the wind. And he said, my son's dying. And he comes to Christ pleading and the Lord rebukes him. Except ye see signs and wonders. That word ye is in the plural. You people. People like you. Except you see signs. You're not going to believe. So here he is, he's an aristocrat, he's an intellectual, he, uh, he's part of the king's court, he is uh, Jewish, by the way, and, and that is a trademark of the Jewish people, it always has been. We read in 1 Corinthians 1, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. The Greeks are into the intellectual thing, but we find the Jews are into the signs 
And yes, there were signs given in the Bible. There's no missing that. But we find that they ended with the completion of the Bible. Don't miss that. The completion of the Bible. I think a careful study of 1 Corinthians will show us the signs that ended with the completion of the Bible. And so signs at the times were a, a thing for the Jews to believe while Christianity was getting off the ground, if I could put it that way, to give it credibility. So here's the Jewish nobleman. He's a sign guy. And, and Jesus, knowing all things, is not impressed with that. He calls them out on that. He rebukes them for that. There are a lot of people today like that. And they seek after signs. Maybe I'm talking to one right now. They go to spiritual conference looking for some kind of a sign. They read about signs. They read about miracles. They pursue them. They talk about them. But let me just say to you folks, that is the shallowest faith. And Christ is not impressed with it. The Bible tells us in Romans 1 that the just shall live by Faith. In fact, it says that four times in the Bible. God's trying to get it to you. The just shall live by faith. In fact, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please him. In fact, the Bible even says what serves not of faith is sin. And that's a rebuke to the sign seekers. So please, please, please don't go seeking signs. We find here the just shall live by faith. Now, how do we get faith? so that we stop chasing after these shallow signs? How do we get faith? Well, in Romans 10, we're told that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We go to the Bible for our faith, and, and really the Bible trumps the signs. You know, Peter went up to the uh, top of Mount Tabor during the ministry of Christ, and there he saw Christ transform before him. He saw Moses and Elijah show up, he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my son, hear him. And years later, Peter attested to the fact, I was there. I saw it firsthand. I heard the voice of God. But then he adds, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Where until you do well that you take heed, and he's talking about the Bible as something more sure. The Bible trumps the signs. So stop with the sign seeking. There's, there are cults out there that were started and, and sustained with signs and, and they pray for a burning in the bosom and a feeling and this and that. And everyday people travel to find a sign or supposedly a shroud that has the resemblance of Christ on it after he's buried. There are statues supposedly in the world that have cried and, and bled. And, and let me just stop and say right here, the devil can do miracles. And that's why we're told to try the spirits, to test the spirits, to see whether they are of God. And you say, well, how do we know? If they speak not according to this word, it's not of God. It has got to line up with the Bible. And that's an immediate red flag if it's a big sign thing. We are now in the age of faith. We have a completed Bible. And so don't be carnal like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew 16, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. All right, if you're the real deal, if you're the son of God, if you're the Messiah, give us a sign. And Christ wasn't impressed with that. In fact, look at closely at what he had to say. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and he left them and departed. He didn't give them their miracle. He didn't give them their sign. 
And may I say to you, God does not have to prove himself to you, and he won't. There are a lot of people, seeing as believing, if God wants me to believe in him, blah, blah, blah. Well, forget it. Forget it. He's not going to amuse you. And my admonition to sign seekers today is to stop seeking the signs, put your faith in the Bible. Now, I said all that to say this, because you need to understand something about the nobleman and why Christ stiff-armed him the way he did. I believe the nobleman, and I got a lot of reason for believing this, but I believe he was part of the sect called the Sadducees. Now, who are the Sadducees? Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spirit. They didn't believe in the afterlife. Really, they were worthless as far as clergymen goes. So the Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural and miraculous. And that's why they were sad, you see. Amen? You catch that? And, and so anyway, we find this man, I believe he was a Sadducee, and that's the reason why Christ rebukes him. He didn't believe in any of that stuff, but now he's singing a different tune. He comes sliding into Christ, his back's to the wall, and all of a sudden, he's interested in this, this miracle worker healing his son supernaturally. There's an old cliche, and you've heard it before, that there are no atheists in foxholes. You know what that means? There are no atheists in foxholes. Suddenly, you find somebody at war in a foxhold, his back's to the wall, and he needs God. You know, there are some folks, and they have no time for church, and they have no time for God until their backs are to the wall. And, and so they'll just lay out of church, they'll, they'll stay back, they'll live stream, until all of a sudden, something in their, their life is in an upheaval, and then all of a sudden, hey, pastor, we, we need you. We need a real, live, tangible person. You know, churches should consider maybe a live streaming hospital visitation these days. And maybe churches should consider live streaming funerals these days with the way people are disregarding the church. We find a nobleman here. He had no time for God, but his back's to the wall. And all of a sudden, um, he comes to Christ. I think he was a Sadducee. And the irony of all that is now he needed God. And that explains a lot. Because Sadducees were fatalists, kind of Sarah, Sarah, kind of fate and good luck and, and bad luck, and you create your own fate. And, but now he's, he's begging the Son of God for a miracle. His son is dying. And he's heard about the wedding feast there in Cana. He's heard about the miracles that Christ had done down in Judea. And so he says, you got to come with me. You got to come with me. Apparently, he's heard about the healing power of Christ, but he probably thinks it's not going to work from 18 miles away. And uh, so he's going to drag Christ back home with him. And really what he wanted was a healer, not a Messiah. Not a Messiah. So Christ had a good reason to temporarily stiff-arm this man and say, except you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. He was basically saying, Where's your proud skepticism now? Where's your proud skepticism now? You're not talking so big now. And this nobleman needed humbling. But here's the message. Why did Christ put off the nobleman? Well, we're going to see that next time. I believe the nobleman gets converted, but he needed humbling. And in another place, Christ said, except you humble yourselves as children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So there's a humbling in store for this man. That's the reason he put him off. 
But we want to talk to Christians for the rest of our time here today. Why is it that God tries your faith as a Christian? Why is that? Are there times, beloved, that he puts you off? That he uh, says in so many words to you, not, not now, not yet, maybe not at all? Why does he do that? Well, I want to reassure you, he loves you dearly. He wants you to grow in grace. He wants you to grow in the knowledge of him. And we read this in James chapter 1 and verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. Count it all joy. Are you going through a trial right now? And are you counting it all joy? The passage goes on and says in so many words, the reason we should count it all joy is because it develops our patience, our patience. You know that God, God is more concerned with your growth than your outcome. And he will teach you patience. And, and in the process, he'll take you through trials. And, and really, let me just say, a trial is really a test of where you're at in the Christian life right now. I walked into a Clayton Hall over here in, in uh, the dorm across the uh, parking lot this last week. And Dr. Venom was giving out a test to our incoming students. And it's kind of a criteria of where they're at. And, uh, and, and the test is to help them see what level they're at, and us to see what level they're at. Now, let me just say, if you're a Christian here today, we're all at different levels, aren't we? We're all at different levels. I've been, I've been saved over 42 years, and I've passed over 36 years. And you know, this past week, I guess I was reminded that you can't expect uh, things from people who are maybe at a level you've never, they've never lived at. And, and so we're all at different levels. But we find James goes on in verse 3, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. You know what that word trying there means? In the Greek, it speaks of irritations. <laughs> Those irritations worketh patience. I'm a little ADHD. You may have picked up on that. A little intense. Um, I get irritated, perhaps. But you know, the goal is for it to take more every day to irritate me than it took the day before. And uh, that's what growth will do. Now, how do you get that way? Well, the trying of your faith worketh patience. And then the next verse says, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect. Perfect. You say, Pastor, you mean we can get to the place of perfection? No, it's talking about a mature place in character. And uh, the goal in life is for you to be growing and getting to a place of maturity. You know, our goal in life, if you ask the average person, person, they'd say, well, I want to be happy. I want to be happy. God's goal for us is to, to grow, to grow. Now, you have trillions of years in heaven to be happy, all right? That day will come. But down here, God wants you to be holy. And God's more interested in your character than in your comfort, your comfort. And so God wants to accomplish some things in your life, and he'll send tests and trials into your life. One is what I call an, a new difficulty test. Are you going through something new right now that you've never gone through before? I've had those times. Imagine when God asked Noah to build an ark. That's a first, right? And, and maybe in your life you have some things you say, I've never done this before. And uh, what will happen is you get thrown out of your comfort zone and your routine, and your schedule. And, and by the way, let me just say that the ministry is anything but routine. It's always different. And so there's the new difficult task, 
test. There's the leap into the unknown trial. I think of Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldees and being told to live in a place he had never lived before. And the Bible says by faith. Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whether he went. Any of you like to proceed forward not knowing what the outcome is going to be? If you're like me, you want to know what, what's in the horizon, don't you? But sometimes there's, those, there's a test of the unknown. There have been a lot of those in, in my life. And you go, where has God taken me? Well, we'll see. But you trust him. Then thirdly, there is the delay test. The delay test. You want something to come to pass, but it's not happening. It might be a wayward kid turned around. It might be a wayward marriage gotten back on track. It, it might be a, a job search. It might be growing a business, and you say, it's just not happening. When? You know, Isaac was 40 years old until he finally got married. And uh, Job, well, he found himself so miserable, and it just went on and on. He had to wait for the answer. But you know, wait doesn't mean no. It just means wait. It just means wait. Jesus had every intention of healing this dying boy. And in fact, he had every intention of raising Lazarus from the dead. But in both cases, they had to wait because God's timetable is often different than ours. Now, let me just say fourthly, sometimes there's the uh, impossible test. And, and you say, what I'm going through is absolutely impossible. And there are times like that. There, there have been things like that in my life that I said, there's just no way this could happen. I'm thinking of somebody I love dearly who honestly, I prayed for their salvation, but I wondered if it could ever, ever happen. It was absolutely impossible and something only God could have done, and he did. George Mueller, that preacher from yesteryear, said the only way to learn strong faith is to endure great trials. I have learned my faith by standing firm amid severe testing, and sometimes it works that way, those tests. There's, fifthly, the, the no-make-sense test. Why did I lose my dream job? Why did that loved one of mine die? It makes no sense. There are some things that God might ask that make no sense. It made no sense to Abraham when God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And sometimes that will be the trial. Or sometimes there's the prolonged pain test. And we could talk about that, but let me just say, whatever it might be, God has a reason for it, and God's ways are the best ways. And he has something he's trying to accomplish when you go through those trials. And so Peter mentions that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found into praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. God is trying to do something in your life, and Peter calls those trials precious. They weren't designed to crush us. They were designed to establish us. And Peter also mentioned the God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Are you going through a trial right now? You know, I, uh, I've been to the uh, Golden Gate Bridge a few times. It's nearly two miles long. It's in the uh, Oakland, San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, after they built it, I believe sometimes, uh, sometime completing it in the 30s, way back in the 30s, uh, there was a hurricane in California, and I thought of that. 
with the recent development we've seen with the hurricane in California. And the Golden Gate Bridge was blown, it was blown by the winds about 12 and a half feet out of alignment. It was bent, and everybody said it's no good. But the engineer back in New York said, no, no, it's still perfect. You can, you can still use it. We designed it to be bent 18 inches out of whack. You know that God has designed you to bend and to expand through the trials. And, and when we do, you know what God does? He promotes us. In fact, Jesus said, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Now, Jesus is going to heal this boy. He's going to do this miracle, but he's going to teach this nobleman a valuable lesson that was life-changing, and we'll see that next time. But let me just quickly say this. If you are here today and you're going through something, God is aware of that. God has a reason for that, and God does care. There was a, a pastor in Philadelphia years ago called Frank Graff. He was always on the upside. Uh, they called him the sunshine minister there because he was always uh, cheerful. And while he may have been outward cheery, yet he was going through a lot of severe trials, a lot of hard times, a lot of agony. And in the midst of all that, there was a song the Lord laid on his heart to write. He sat down and he began to pen the words of a song called, Does Jesus Care? Does Jesus Care? And Frank Graff got through the, the stanza and by that point, he had put some question marks in his own mind. Does Jesus care? And so he ran to the Bible. He started leafing through it. And he found himself in 1 Peter chapter 5, where it speaks of casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And so after questioning, does Jesus care? He came to the chorus and he said with joy, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. And he does. God cares. So a nobleman comes to Jesus in anticipation and desperation, but hope. And at first he's turned down. But we're going to see next time that he was persistent. And it led to the answer and it led to the victory. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.